Thank you for tuning in to This Week Explained, the intelligence-based geopolitical podcast that keeps you informed about the world around you. We are grateful for your support and appreciate you being a part of our community of informed listeners. We would love for you to share This Week Explained with your friends, family, and colleagues. Together, we can make a difference by sharing knowledge and fostering meaningful conversations. So, what are you waiting for? Help us grow our community by sharing This Week Explained with your loved ones. You are now listening to This Week Explained. Welcome to This Week Explained, the independent geopolitical podcast that tackles all the major global events. We're glad that you're here as we bring you all the insights and analysis on what's happening around the world. As always, I'm Tiana with Carbon as my co-host. Together, we'll help you understand the complexities of our dynamic, ever-changing world. Let's get to what's on the agenda this week, Carbon. All right. Unlike a lot of other podcasts you may listen to this week dealing with geopolitics, we are going to talk Russia-Ukraine. Because uh, it's still going on. <laughs> it is still ongoing, and it's still, uh, I think, a threat to, you know, moving over borders. Uh, we'll also talk about how recently Russia was denied their seat on the UN Human Rights Council. <laughs> so that's awesome. that, was, that was pretty big. Then <laughs> we are going to get into uh, Israel, Hamas. And just like we did with Russia, Ukraine, that's going to be continuous. So you're always going to hear us talk about Israel, Hamas, because it is a war. Israel declared war on Hamas. And we're going to discuss the geopolitical ramifications of that each week. I mean, if you want to be honest, Hamas kind of declared war on yeah, Israel well, first. <laughs> the, yeah, bring it bring it back so, to the neutral I mean, ground. Yeah. Uh, while Israel formally announced you know, the articles of war against Hamas. Hamas did bring it on themselves. Because Hamas knows that actions speak louder than words, so they... They took action. Acted. They took action. Horrendous action. Yes. Right. Well, we will discuss all of that. Um, yeah. And then we're going to get into some other less uh, talked about geopolitical events this week, one of which was uh, two Polish commanders resigned ahead of elections in Poland. We'll get into why that happened and why it's important. Then I wanted to talk about the Indo-Pacific, talk about North Korea. They have said that they need their military spy satellites to combat an aggressive United States. Mm-hmm. And while they said that, the United States sent a nuclear-powered aircraft carrier to South Korea. Don't they realize we currently have bigger fish to fry than them I mean, right now? We we do. There's so much going on right. around the world. And they just keep saying, but they're mean to us, so we need this stuff that we're not supposed to have. Yeah, and that's the problem with being the superpower, right? Every There's a bullseye on you from everybody that does not agree with what right. you do. Right. 
My bulky for the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Well, huh, let's get right into it. What is the latest coming out of Ukraine? All right. So Ukrainian forces continue counteroffensive operations near Bakhmut, also western Zaporizhia. They have made uh, confirmed advances in uh, Donetsk, Zaporizhia border area. Uh, also, Russian forces launched a localized offensive operation in the Afdivka area of Donetsk. They also did a uh, offensive operation in western Zaporizhia Oblast. And that's likely intended to push Ukrainian forces away from the Robotine area. If you remember, we talked about that. Ukraine was very successful in attacking Robotine. Right. Um, also, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky made a surprise trip to NATO to request more funding. Well, that's an interesting development. Does that coincide with the recent Israel-Hamas conflict, or do you think this was planned for a while? Yeah, uh, having been part of planning for this kind of like high-level VIP engagement, I right. this had been planned for a while. The timing just yeah. doesn't look too good. <laughs> Which whichever way you you look at it, it's either good or bad timing. Um, mm-hmm. Now th- these types of visits do take a lot of planning because you're looking at logistics and security. Uh, so it's it's highly pro- probable that the talk talking about a target on your back. Zelensky definitely has a target on his back. So obviously, all kinds of planning goes into these sorts of meetings. I mean, I'd say every time that guy gets on a plane, he's afraid. Uh, especially after what happened with uh, with Sol uh, oh, Prigozhin oh, over there. I was, I was gonna wait for you to get it. <laughs> I was gonna let you yeah. stumble over it a little bit, figure um, it out. Not always a sharp mind, but I'm trying here. Uh, I understand that completely. <laughs> My mind's yeah. not sharp at all. I am dull. <laughs> we are. We're working on it though. Um, mm-hmm. But what I was trying to to say was that it's highly probable. That the surprise visit was unrelated to the conflict in Israel. Yeah, probably. Now, Zelensky said that the the priority for his country was how are they going to survive during the winter? This was very similar to requests last year from Zelensky in trying to survive through the winter. Um, he was asked about the Israel-Hamas crisis. Um, he said that his recommendation is for leaders to go to Israel and he said that he thinks they should support the people, just people in in Israel. And so kind of reading into what he's saying, it, it looks like to me, he is nervous that military aid for Ukraine is going to be shifted now to Israel. Well, what makes you say that? Well, he just he didn't give support for aid to Israel. He made it clear that the leaders should go to Israel to support the people on the ground being harmed by this conflict. As, Without as, any money or military aid or anything. Right. He didn't say. <laughs> thoughts, thoughts and prayers, guys. Thought, yeah, lots. <laughs> yeah he, he didn't say the West should support Israel any way mm-hmm. it sees fit because Israel is a top ally. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's, I mean, I'd expect nothing less because, look, his He's, focus yeah. 
is on, his, on country. his country. If it wasn't on his country, that would be red flags to me for a leader. Um, and, and they're going to continue to fight and defend against an aggressive Russian adversary. Well, we will get into the Israel-Hamas conflict soon, but I wanted to get into the recent report that Russia has been denied a seat on the UN Human Rights Council. Can you explain the significance here? And um, how how will this hurt Russia's already low support for its, quote, special military operation? Yeah, certainly this defeat is uh, undoubtedly a, a blow to Russia's already rock-bottom international reputation. Uh, it highlights that a significant majority of UN member states are not willing to support Russia's return to the Human Rights Council. And it reflects widespread concerns about Russia's more aggressive actions, particularly that invasion of Ukraine. The voting results showed that Bulgaria and Albania um, secured more votes than Russia, even, yeah, you know, to join the Human Rights Council. So how significant is this, given Russia's claim that it has the support of a silent majority? Well, that majority must be very silent. Very silent, locked in a in a cave somewhere. Yeah, and it's, <laughs> it's a Locked significant away. development, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Russia did manage to secure some support, mm-hmm. uh, but course. it was nowhere near the majority it may have hoped for. So even though 83 votes uh, came from less than half of the 193 UN member nations, meaning they got 83 votes, but they needed more than half, uh, it raises questions about the extent of Russia's international backing. I don't think they have what they thought they did. Now, Moscow's attempt to regain a seat on the Human Rights Council was met, obviously, with a strong opposition from Ukraine and its Western allies. But even those that were sitting on the fence had kind of have now waned their support for Russia. So th- this defeat serves as a reminder of the ongoing conflict and that differing perspectives that those nations have. Because 83 nations have a different perspective on what human rights are within the UN, Human Rights Council. Well, the United States and other countries actively campaigned against Russia's re-election. So how does this impact the U.S.-Russia relations and the broader geopolitics? The broader geopolitics. Broader geopolitics. We all get a chance to be tongue-tied for a minute. Yeah, it's because I made fun of you earlier with your fuzzy brain, so now my tongue is not cooperating. <laughs> now it's your turn. But this is uh, a- another point of contention in already strained relationship. Uh, are we getting to the point where there's no turning back in that relationship um, until new leadership in Russia? I don't know yet. Uh, the United States and its allies view Russia's actions in Ukraine as war crimes and human rights violations. Russia says otherwise. Uh, the opposition to Russia's return to the Human Rights Council reflects their stance. It reflects the stance of the United States, all Western nations on these issues. But I want to I want to bring to light that the defeat of Russia it doesn't quiet the concerns about China and Cuban's election in Cuba's election to the Council because they have their own human rights records that are very right. poor. Um, that raises questions about at least the by Western standards. By Western considered standards, very poor. You know. Yeah. Uh, we we could go down the list, but hey, look, the, you could go down the list of U.S. human rights violations and and probably come up with some stuff. 
Let's talk about. Yeah, let's let's talk about a new movie coming out that shows how the U.S. greeted. Well, I was thinking about like water in Michigan and the oil pipeline on state. Oh yeah, and yeah, like all kinds of things. Yeah. So. Yeah, but keep going. But keep going. So, how credible is the UN Human Rights Council? I say they do some good. They they also, you know, kind of stand on the fence for a lot of things. So this this highlights the need for continued scrutiny of council members and those council members' human rights records. Well, we will certainly be keeping track of this development, but I think we should turn the focus to the current conflict between Hamas and Israel now, because that's probably what a lot of people are more concerned about at the moment. Um, We touched a bit on it in our bonus episode that came out this week, but I do think it is prudent to explain further what has happened and what we are looking at for the future of the geopolitical landscape. Um, Can we start with a brief explainer about Israel and Palestine and why it seems so volatile in that region? And then we will get into the future outlook for this conflict and how lasting peace could possibly be achieved. Yeah, and... And so we'll start at the beginning. And this because obviously, yeah, obviously this whole thing, it's so nuanced and there's so many layers. This would probably be better served to have like a whole episode. Oh, I mean, this this is if you guys want a history lesson, just let us. Well, yeah, I was about to say this together. Yeah. A college level course. And you still couldn't through that whole semester. Mm hmm. Because it's for everything really from the the dawn of you say the dawn of time but the dawn of modern historical um yeah. thinking right like right biblically abraham and and that you know that kind of stuff two sons and and moving between the two factions we're not going to go that far <laughs> we're only going to go to the late 19th century when jews began migrating to palestine uh that at that time it was a part of the ottoman empire uh, and so Jews started to buy land in the region. That sounds like Osages. Yeah. Uh, and listen, I think Jews and and, Os- and so and Native Americans have a lot of similar uh, history, right? They were very nomadic. Mm-hmm. They just walked around and, and they found homes where they could find them. And then when they found an actual home, uh, they were thrown out by other powers and things like that. So there are some similarities there. Some parallels. All right. Okay. Sorry. I I keep distracting you from the actual answer that we need. So get to what the actual response is to the question, which was. Right. So so then we get to the turn of the century into the 20th century. Right. After World War One, the British took control of Palestine, as they do with a lot of places. The British took control of whatever they could get their hands on. And at that time, they promised both the Jews and the Arabs that they were going to support their national aspirations. So a two-state solution is what that so sounds honestly, like. So honestly, what I'm getting is that Great Britain is the bad guy in this. <laughs> I'm just kidding. There's that, so there's that video, right, where you've got two British soldiers talking to each other. Um, it's a joke video, but they start talking about what Britain has done over the years. And they're like, are we the bad guys? Oh, I think we're the bad guys. Oh, geez. Um, in this realization. What, well, I mean, it's all about time and circumstance, right? Mm-hmm. 
and you're doing what you love their time and circumstance. Right. You're you're gonna do what you are told to do by the king or queen. And also they're trying to rectify that stuff now. Slowly, but Good they're on trying. Them. Trying. So um so right. So they were gonna make a two state solution between the Jews and Arabs, which is what people have been asking for before this uh this conflict re revamped um or re resurged. But in nineteen forty seven uh, the United Nations and and listen, I'm I'm just brushing over a lot of stuff here. I like I said before, this is not a history lesson, right? But uh, if if you take the years I'm saying into account, you'll understand the history of, of what's going on. So it's, in 19, yeah, 1947, the United Nations voted to partition Palestine into a separate Jewish and Arab state. The Arabs rejected that plan. They wanted Palestine, all of Palestine, back. So in 1948, Israel declared independence and the neighboring Arab countries invaded in response to that declaration of independence. Israel won the war. They then expanded its territory beyond the original UN partition plan because they won the war. That's what yeah, you Yeah, I mean, if they just, I mean, if it was just agreed to that, because they bought the land that they were trying to inhabit, right? Well, various Jewish communities bought the land uh, within the 19th century. If you think of that time of like expansion, that's global mm-hmm. expansion. Okay. So we didn't know where a lot of like land was or who owned the land. So the yeah. Jewish people started to to buy up certain communities for their families to be at. Okay. Okay. Then when but I it was about native. It was native Arab land. Yeah. I'm just making yeah. sure. I just want everything to be clear for everybody because I know a lot of people don't know like the intricacies of this conflict. So now if you if you take it from so if you ask a Jewish scholar or a theologian like a Christian theologian, they would tell you that the the land that's being fought for right now was always given to the Jews by God. Um oh, okay. and so that is their land and so so that's sort of where that discussion we're not going to have that discussion. No, don't go so, down that road. And <laughs> I can talk about a political discussion or a religious discussion on this. Yeah. I only want to bring to light what's actually going on and and what it means. So saying that, the conflict between Israel and its Arab neighbors has been ongoing for many years. There have been several wars, numerous uprisings by Palestinians against Israeli occupation. Huh. Um, you know, that we if you read the reporting, they'll talk about the Yom Kippur War. As the last time we had this big of a conflict within Israel, right. that's that's how far back it goes. That's the seventies. Um, so we talk about several wars. the The conflict is rooted in competing claims to land and resources, and so it's not just religious and cultural differences. Most wars are fought for that land and resources. It's it's a highly emotional issue, and it's highly emotional for both Israelis, for Jews, for Palestinians, Arabs. Uh, and that's the main factor that contributes to the volatility in that area. Right. Israeli Jews feel as though they have a right to the land. Uh, first of all, they won the war in 1948, but they feel as though they were given that land by God, by Yahweh, Allah, right. to to be there. And that's always been their land. That's how they feel. The Palestinians feel as though the Israelis are oppressing them. So they're being oppressed by the Israeli government. And they've asked, they want their land to be returned to them. 
So does this mean we will not see the two-state solution in the region? Yeah, so there's there's tabling the discussion, and then there's what we have here with the two-state solution, which is pretty much setting it on fire and throwing it from the tallest point you can find in the region. Uh, the the two-state solution is officially on life support right now, and it's doesn't look like that's coming back. Okay, so what about the recent normalization of relations between Israel and the Arab states friendlier to the West? Yeah, that's on life support as well. It's not as not as much so as the two-state solution. It hasn't been lit on fire. Uh, but a, this is why I think that Iran was directly involved. There's reporting today that U.S. intelligence says they're not seeing any um, any evidence that there was involvement. I don't consider that I don't consider that true because of the things that I've seen, because of how Iran is usually involved in these kind of situations. And the fact that both Hamas and Hezbollah leadership came out and said, oh, yeah, it's, you know, Iran helped us with all of this. So I think that's more of the U.S. government saying, hey, we're really trying to get back to this Iran nuclear deal and we're not trying to, to stoke the flames within that region any further so let's put that out but um uh that so that's why i think iran was involved in the planning and execution of the attack by hamas yeah well you need to explain further than that yeah further than my gut feeling is that iran was involved outside of yeah you can't just say my gut feeling (laughs) i know iran (laughs) well did contribute Uh, What I do know is that Iran was getting very nervous about the recent improvement in relations between Israel and some of the Arab states, most notably Saudi Arabia. Um, If Israel improves its status within the Arab world, that's going to be a big hit to what Iran can do in the region. Okay, well, let's get into the current conflict and start with how and why this was planned. So it dates back to May 2021. uh, That in 2021, Israel had a raid on Islam's third holiest site, Al-Masjid Al-Aqsa, which is the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Mm-hmm. That is in Jerusalem, and it enraged the entire Arab and Muslim world. Well, that's messed up. So what what Israel said was that was a breeding ground for terrorist activity. They were using the, the Al-Aqsa Mosque to... Is it uh, cover, kind of? Like a shell... Yes. To, to not only stoke those flames of, of hatred towards Israel, but to also plan and execute attacks like this. Okay, so what's their proof? Dare did they not give us proof? They just said, we think this is what they're doing. So they said their intelligence community had information that okay. there were terrorist organizations that were training and being influenced w- within the mosque, and they raided it to get those those people and did um, they get those people they said that they did get okay. some but they also pulled out civilians arrested civilians um and and some of the palestinians felt that they were a little too aggressive in okay. what they did uh, i am not condoning what israel did right the Al-Aqsa mosque i think there's a better way to go about that Right, it's somebody's holy site. You have right, to don't... be very careful with those sorts of things. Exactly. You can't just run in. It's something that we had. We did. 
We didn't in, raid. No, it's it's something that whenever we, as the U.S. military within Iraq well, well, in Afghanistan, personally, you and uh, you. No, and well, okay. No, we have not. Not you and I, but but within the U.S. military, if well, there was there was no chance, first of all, that I could call a strike on a mosque in Iraq or Afghanistan. That would be denied immediately. I don't care who I saw go in there. Right. Um, you know, a lot of times we did see some of these terrorist organizations uh, pull, you know, perform an attack on U.S. military and then retreat back into the mosque because they know it's a holy site and they know right. that we as Americans are not going to fire back into that. Now, sometimes we did because we witnessed the person fire at us, run into the mosque, and mm-hmm. at that point, when you have a visual on that and you've confirmed it, you can go in there and and take out the threat. When you say confirmed it, you mean confirmed like their aggressive actions towards the United so, States? So it's all in rules of engagement that we have. Um, it's an escalation of force. Mm-hmm. An individual fires on a U.S. military member, uh, then you fire. You can now fire back. Okay. If you keep... I, you know, positive identification of that individual, they go into the mosque, you will not be able to call a strike into that mosque from a drone or or something like that, a missile strike, because you do not, we do not want to destroy a holy site anywhere as far as- Kills civilians who could possibly be in the mosque worshiping. Correct. But if you can get a sniper to identify, you know, keep positive identification- and mm-hmm. fire around into that person without collateral damage, that is something that we would do as okay. the U.S. military. But okay. to go into a mosque like that, no. Right, okay. So that storming of that mosque helped set off 11 days of fighting between Israel and Hamas. Uh, it was planned by the Hamas commander, Mohammed Diff. They started planning it in 2021. Oh, we're finding out now through sources within Hamas was the decision to prepare the attack was actually taken jointly by Dave, who commands Hamas, um, and then Yahya Sinwar. And he's the leader of Hamas in Gaza. Well, then this is the perfect spot to ask, how did this fly under the radar of Israeli and, quite frankly, U.S. intelligence agencies? Yeah, and that's... Such a nuanced question. There's so many theories and differing opinions on this one. Um, some say it wasn't even an intelligence failure at all because the information wasn't there. But uh, And it's people that I respect very much so that are saying that. And I push back on that theory. Why? Well, because the first part of the intelligence cycle is collection. That means if you didn't collect the information to create the intelligence, you failed. Your intelligence agency failed so because they didn't collect the information they yeah i think that's an intelligent you're saying you're saying they didn't put in the work to or not put in the work necessarily but they didn't try to look for something like this yeah that's that's one theory that i could see happen okay but on the bonus episode um you said it was more of a government failure so can you explain yourself further yeah, sure. I, so I'm of the opinion that someone had the information. So I don't believe that there wasn't collection happening. Right. 
What I'm saying there is to say that, well, there was no information, so it wasn't an intelligence failure. Uh, that can't be true because collection's a part of intelligence analysis. So I think that the, the information was there. Someone had the information. And I, I definitely think that it's probable that they elevated it to their leadership. But due to other government factors, one being Israel didn't have a government at the time, it wasn't acted upon. So, and there, there's two reasons. One, I already mentioned uh, that government was been has been in flux since 2021. Um, so their focus has been on all kinds of other issues. They're, they're focused on forming a government, social issues, uh, political issues. and and But then the other factor in this is leadership probably said there was no way Hamas was that capable and that brazen to carry out such an attack. That's very similar to what happened for 9-11 in the United States. We could probably have this conversation for hours, but there are some other geopolitical events that we need to get into. But before we move on, though, can you break down how you see this playing out over the next few months, if it lasts that long, and what people should be looking out for to keep them informed and protected? Yeah, and I would say buckle up because I do think this is going to happen. This is going to be going on for a few months. Um, now remember various event events can change this analysis and we're going to continue to adapt our analysis based on changes on the ground in Israel and Gaza. But right now Israel's planning a, uh, a full scale targeted ground offensive into Gaza targeting Hamas militants in the region. I want to be very clear on that. Um, Israel has said this is a targeted ground offensive directed at Hamas militants, so not Palestinian civilians. Okay. Now what they say and what they do fighting as dirty as Hamas is. Now there are there are scenes out there that you can see where missile strikes from Israel going into Gaza has killed civilians. Oh and that should not happen. Now Israel's also come out and told the people of Gaza to get out. You know, the the corridor was open from um, Palestine through Egypt to get people out. And so Israel gave them 24 hours to get out, and then they started a missile barrage. Okay. That's still, to me, you know, all collateral damage to me is tragic. And so I don't like to see that. Of course. Now, um, Netanyahu, so uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, has called for the destruction of Hamas as a terror organization. He said the IDF, the Israeli Defense Force, would not stop until that is achieved. So that's something to look for over the next few months. Um, a, a targeted ground operation in Gaza could lead to a full-scale invasion, depending on the success of that targeted operation. And what I'm saying there is, if it's not successful with taking down Hamas, you're going to see a full-scale full-on invasion of Palestine from Israel. Now, from there, our focus is going to be on what Hezbollah is doing in the north from Lebanon. Uh, They've offered assistance to Hamas. They've begun launching rockets into Israel. Hamas, Hamas could, or I'm sorry, Hezbollah could draw Israeli forces into a ground conflict in in Lebanon to the north. So at that point, now Israel's focused on two fronts. And then at that point, it's going to be very interesting to follow Iran's response to any force-on-force engagements between 
Israeli forces and Iranian proxy forces. And that could be the moment Iran gets involved physically. So that turns this into a major Middle Eastern war. And that certainly calls for U.S. involvement to defend their ally in Israel. Now, what people should be concerned about on an individual level is obviously oil and gas prices. Those are going to be on the rise as the conflict becomes a protracted war. That means everything you buy is going to be affected. Supply chain issues are going to pop up again. Um, then on a even more personal everyday level, you're going to see chances of peaceful protests turning violent because it's such an emotional hot button issue. There's also an increased chance of lone wolf style attacks. Uh, what I have not seen yet and continue to look out for is a planned coordinated attack from terrorists on Western nations. Now, those governments are on high alert right now. So if you what you need to be doing is look for those public statements from your government on any information that's acquired that would lead a government to believe that that government needs to prepare for a terrorist attack. Well, that's all great advice. And I mean, it does kind of look doubtful, like we will see a quick resolution. We obviously both hope that that's not going to be the case, that there will be a quick peaceful resolution. But there's just so much behind this conflict. Like I said earlier, so many layers. Not even going to pretend like I fully understand it all because I don't. And if you are sitting there saying you do, you're probably lying. I'm not talking about you. I'm saying our listeners. Oh, if I told you I knew everything. Oh, well, I mean, I didn't. You wouldn't. You wouldn't deign to say such a thing. <laughs> yeah, and I have my own sources that I've been reaching out to to get more information. Well, I mean, obviously. We would like the perpetrators to pay for their actions and save civilian lives over everything else. Yes. But right now, let's get into what is going on in Poland as they get ready for a hotly contested election. This week, two Polish commanders resigned leading up to the elections. Can you explain that situation and why these commanders decided now's the time to leave? Right. So one key factor appears to be their dissatisfaction with the politicization of the military in Poland. Does that sound familiar to everybody in the United States? Mm. Yeah. So the, the tensions between the military leadership and the Polish government have been brewing for some time now. Uh, and, and decisions made without their input seem to be the final straw. So the resignations are seen as a blow to the Law and Justice, or the PIS, party within Poland. And it is a direct blow to their election campaign. So that party is seen within Poland as a national conservative party, which has emphasized its commitment to national security. So these resignations undermine their claim to be the sole party capable of safeguarding Poland. And the timing suggests a deliberate act to express a lack of confidence in the current political leadership. How might these resignations affect the region's security, given that Poland's strategic location, given, you know, Poland's strategic location in Eastern Europe? Yeah, Poland's role as a NATO member and that strategic location you talked about in Eastern Europe make it a crucial player in regional security. So the departure of key military leaders at such a critical time introduces a new element of uncertainty. So it's essential for the new commanders that are brought on to maintain a stable defense posture and then collaborate with NATO allies because there's this real fear in Poland of possible Russian influence within that nation. 
And this might not be an isolated incident, right? Because there are rumors of further senior officer resignations. So how does this impact the military's stability? So if that, you know, if that's confirmed, um, and for what, what I'm seeing is that that is coming, there are going to be more resignations. It could create a leadership vacuum and affect the cohesion of the Polish military. So the coming months are going to be very pivotal. The newly appointed military leadership is going to need to navigate this complex political terrain and try to push away from politics and maintain a steady defense posture. Uh, once again, we have an election where the results will shed light on how these recent events have definitely influenced the political landscape. Well, let's move on to another volatile region and discuss the latest from North Korea, our buddies who just keep popping up. Um, who has said, North Korea, they said that their satellite program needs to be improved as a direct deterrence to what it calls countering U.S. space militarization. So what does North Korea say they are concerned about the U.S. doing with space assets? Well, if we're going to take their public statements at face value, um, North Korea says they are worried about what they call a camouflaged shade to cover up a preemptive attack on anti-U.S. and independent countries, most notably their country, North Korea. They would consider themselves the independent country. Uh, a spokesperson for the North Korean regime said the U.S. is getting hell-bent on space militarization with a preemptive nuclear attack as its ultimate target. What are they talking about? This <laughs> So they know all of this, and nobody else here knows any of this. Well, I mean, they we would say more. they we would have... say. Sorry, go. Uh, I was just going to say that obviously we have other things that we are focusing on right now. We don't have the money to build, and well, we'll just go further into debt. Let's be honest. We're just going to raise that debt ceiling. We're not going to do anything to bring down the debt. We're just going to raise the debt ceiling. I mean, can we? We don't even have a house speaker. Um, it's That's crazy here in the U.S. Like, it's really never mind. Yeah, I, when I'm I gonna get into right. yeah, let's not get down that road. Right. Okay. It. So, I mean, the I guess they have a point. A little, I don't know. I I say that because the last topic you wanted to discuss the um, USS Reagan heading to South Korea. That carrier is nuclear capable, but I don't see them shooting those nuclear weapons into space. Is that what they were saying, that we're going to shoot something into space? No, so what they're saying is... <laughs> they were um, saying that we were trying to shoot nuclear weapons into space. I'm like, what is that going to do? No, it's it, what they're talking about is how the U.S. uses satellite capabilities in order to guide uh, nuclear-capable missiles okay. into certain locations. I'm letting my dumb dumb show through right now. Not, not at all. This is very. I just haven't researched this. No, I don't know. I didn't understand what they were saying. I just assumed it was just. Um, that... I don't know. Yeah, it's it's what they easy to talking crap about it. Right, it's they're just a bunch of bluster and mm -hmm. saying words, but they have no meaning behind it. But you wanted to know about the USS Reagan. Yeah, I want to know if they actually do have a point with what they're claiming, what they're afraid of. You know, I want to know if they have a point because 
honestly, I think we have other things that we're concerned about right now, and it's not firing a firing a nuclear weapon at North Korea. Yeah, and listen, they'd have a point if their history led me to believe that there is actual concern there. Mm-hmm. Um, I I just don't believe their concern that the U.S. would make a preemptive strike, and they're definitely. Why don't we uh, do it on North Korea? Yes, exactly. And not a not definitely not a preemptive nuclear strike right? on North Korea. It's probably just to drum up support in their country saying that stuff out loud. Right, because right now I'm only talking about government. When I say North Korea, and I guess I should say this just as a caveat across the board. When we say North Korea, China, the U.S., you know, other when we talk about a country, I'm not talking about the people within that country. We're talking mm-hmm. about governments and militaries and and what they're doing. Right. Um, I, I leave the civilian population out of it because they have no um, control over it. Exactly. And the most part, no freaking say so. Exactly. No input. No. No choice. No. We just have to do what the like the land we live on. That's what we have to capitulate what, to. Is the so government we have to work with. Yeah. Uh, now, I would not be surprised if you ask the regular populace in North Korea. They would probably tell you that they are very worried. And that's because that's what the government controlled media is telling them in North Korea. Uh, America's here to kill you. Now, as for Kim Jong-un and the, the government leadership in Pyongyang, they know the U.S. has zero plans to conduct a preemptive strike. I want to reiterate that preemptive strike. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that doesn't mean the U.S. isn't going to send nuclear assets to deter North Korea from striking allies in the region, most notably their ally in South Korea. Meaning North Korea has to make the move first. Correct. In order to force our hand. Okay. So that is what the U.S. is doing with the USS Ronald Reagan. They just want to deter any further prov- provocative actions from North Korea. Isn't that in and of itself... Um, kind of a provocative action i mean they're gonna take it that way no matter what we do <laughs> yeah it, it is for sure um but it's a provocative action that achieves exactly what it sets out to achieve and that's deterring north korea from a direct attack on south korea or japan what it's not going to stop is the increase in missile and satellite testing uh, but it does hope to prevent an all-out attack by letting North Korea know the U.S. is primed and ready to defend allies within the region. But do you think that's enough to deter Kim Jong-un? I mean, I don't know that anything would fully deter the wild card that is Kim Jong-un. Um, I'm all, honestly, I think we need to come up with a different name for him. Because a new one. I'm getting sick of the wild card. The wild. I don't even think wild card really encompasses everything. Well, we'll figure that out. We'll find yeah. a new name for, for Kim Jong-un. Or send one in if you're listening and okay. you have one. So can we get into a topic that you didn't bring up in the rundown but kind of fits into this conversation? Yeah. I mean, sure. What What are you interested in? Do we have any updates on evidence of weapons being transferred from North Korea to Russia after their Big old meeting between Kim Jong-un and Vladimir Putin on that magical green train. A magical bulletproof 37 mile per hour max train. Man, max speed. Max speed Um, 37. That's like my max speed. 
Is that his? Is that Kim Jong Un's name? Max Speed. Max Speed. Hey. <laughs> um, but there was some information that came out over the weekend. Uh, satellite imagery showed a dramatic increase in the amount of rail traffic from North Korea to Russia. And that was after the leaders of the two countries recently met, which we, we talked about. Some analysts have suggested the buildup could be evidence of weapons officially being transferred from North Korea to Russia to be used to prop up its invasion of Ukraine. Well, with that possibility out there and the fact that more resources from the West are going to be moved from Ukraine to Israel in light of the conflict there, what does the future hold for the war in Ukraine? Is this basically a blessing for Putin where he can now begin an offensive into Kiev? Or do you think he's also going to be hurting because, you know, Iran is obviously focused on, which is obviously that's also another thing that we're speculating on. But I mean, we found Iranian drone parts in Russia. So, right. And there's or in Ukraine. So do with that what you will. Right. The very much look like the Shahid drones from from Iran. And you've got right. spot on analysis right there. Um, I do think Putin um, is quite happy with what's going on in Israel. He came out and said that he is pro Hamas right now. Um, and this has shifted focus to the middle to the Middle East again. It's not just government focus, but the global population has changed. It makes, their. It does make sense why he would be pro Hamas, obviously not from like a religious standpoint, but from the but this was our land first. Yeah. Standpoint. So yeah. he thinks that they are justified in it. And he I mean, can... there are other what they didn't need to go after all those civilians, though. That's yeah, they that was a big mistake. Uh, um, like if they wanted people to support this whole thing, I, the way they're going about it is awful. And and I don't know if we mentioned this on the bonus episode or if this was just in the mini talks that we had. There's a huge difference in performing that attack and directing it directly to the Israeli Defense Force and the military and the government within Israel. But as soon as you start taking in civilian hostages on and be, purpose, like you and can't be even claim that you, yeah, you can't even claim that it was an accident that they thought that they were in the military or something. Exactly, like they are a clearly is civilians not in the military. A old late an old woman being murdered in her house and then having it be posted on Facebook is not part of the IDF. Exactly. And because this is such an emotional and divisive issue for those on social media. Okay. It's going to completely remove the focus of unity towards Ukraine. Kind of saw all throughout once yeah. Russia invaded Ukraine there was this huge up uh, not uprising but focus on unity and right. the majority of accounts that you saw changed to the Ukrainian flag and peace and everything this is such a divisive issue that people are changing their Ukrainian flag and some maybe put up an Israeli flag but others are putting up a Palestinian flag and still others are putting Hamas flags up Actual Hamas flags. Yes. They're not even like trying to, they're like, you know what side we're on and it's not people. Right. And and even Elon Musk had put out a tweet to promote certain accounts that are... Um, Anti-Semitic, right? Yeah, well... That's what I saw, is that it was an, like anti-Semitic... Well, it was pro-Hezbollah and pro-Hamas 
um, open source intelligence accounts. Oh, okay. So there's these news accounts that continue to do what we do, put out geopolitical news, but it's biased, and their bias was Hezbollah. They're very pro-Hezbollah. Okay. okay. And he said those are the accounts that everybody should be following. Now, I don't, I don't know yeah. what to think about Elon's brain. I think he saw some major independent accounts with blue check marks mm-hmm. that were getting a lot of... Uh, a lot of followers and they were doing a lot of things and so he said hey follow these accounts yeah i just i definitely think he didn't think that all the way through he just wanted to show support for somebody yeah for twitter accounts or x accounts whatever you want yeah x ah it will never be x to me yeah it is always i still call it twitter i know and i don't know if anybody will ever change but i miss the bird right stupid little x stupid Um, x but make no mistake, the, the discourse around Russia's invasion of Ukraine, like I said, was very much around unity, around sovereignty, um, and protecting against Western aggressive actions, not Western actions, which can be aggressive from time to time. Um, like I said, the conflict in Israel has shown how divisive the situation is. And right now, Western countries are dealing with economic crises in tandem with the need to support their allies. So there's going to come a point very soon when the tough decision will need to be made whether to continue military aid for all of these allies or tell them that they're going to have to defend themselves without the support of the U.S. and Western Europe. That's going to impact the safety and security of the West as well, not just Israel or Ukraine or Palestine. Because we all know terrorism doesn't just happen in the Middle East. It's, It's going to reach the West. We also know that Putin has said he wants to return to the Soviet Union. So I've had a chance, an honor, I guess, to sit on multiple conference calls this week uh, for both the public and private sector. And the main takeaway from those organizations, they're obviously worried about the safety of their people. They're also worried about the information space we brought up with Twitter. Right. These these organizations are being inundated with information. Um, It's unvetted, unreliable. Right. It's just whatever people decide to put out there. Yep. And if it takes off, you have no control over what takes off, whether or not it's vetted information or if it's just some a-hole sitting by their computer just slapping their keyboard and putting it out there. You have no control over that. That's what made Twitter so made it so popular is because you didn't have to have your face on there. You could sit behind a keyboard. You could say, hey... I'm a 20-year intelligence analyst. No one can find out mm-hmm. because your account would have nothing identifiable to you. You could use a throwaway email. You could use all kinds of stuff. So these organizations are being inundated with that misinformation and disinformation. And so as I sat and listened to them talk about that, it made me realize that what we are doing on this podcast and through our Instagram is very, still very important. And we want to filter out all the noise and then provide only what is relevant and factual. And there's a small group that are trying to do that right now all through social media. And I hope we're allowed to continue to do that and that that does bring some good into this world. Well, thank you, Kervin. Is that all you have for this week? That's it for me, unless you wanted to add anything else. Well, I wanted to thank everyone for listening to our anniversary episode and... Um, We've had a lot of new followers this week, so we want to say, howdy, welcome to the West. (laughs) Welcome to the West. I don't Uh, know what that accent was. My dad will be very disappointed in me. (laughs) 
Welcome to West Texas. Welcome to West Texas. Except he he'd be mad at that accent. That was not a good West Texas no. accent. And he was also not West Texan. He was East Texas. So that's true. Yeah. So but I guess anyways. we should say since we do have new listeners. Yeah. That, um, you welcome. Might, yeah, welcome. And you might have come over here thinking, well, I'm here for like a somber, you know typical NPR type of geopolitical conversation on and on and on and on. And that's not what Tiana and I do. What we focus on are having the conversations that you probably have with your friend group or your coworkers or a husband and wife or other spouses. Yeah, we try to simplify um, the big geopolitical events for people who may not have access to uh, people in the military or just access to, to a lot of the information or they're getting misinformation. And you found yeah. this podcast because uh, you were tired of the misinformation. You're going to hear probably some uncomfortable giggles from time to time. Not from time to time. After everything I say, I giggle and it's not on purpose. Well, it's it's part of how we discuss things between the two of us. Yeah. We, we talk a lot and we, we do some heavy conversations there's some laughing in between that because for your mental health, that's very much needed. Um, you kind of have to decompress from that. We learned that over the last two years. Yeah, it's not good to just keep reading and discussing these things without, you know, decompressing. It weighs on, it. yeah, it weighs on you. So you have to find an outlet somehow. But anyways, we definitely just want to say welcome and thank you for giving us a shot. We really appreciate it. And if you like what you hear, um, we also have, it's a discontinued, it might be like revived at some point, but it's like a discontinued, like secondary, um, not secondary podcast, but like a side, an extra bonus episode called Insightful Inquiries, where we interview people from all kinds of professions within not not just the military, but we interview people within journalism, people within intel, people who have worked for you know agencies, and it's it's incredible if you want to give those a listen to. Yep, it is it is getting revived. I know we haven't done it. Uh, the bonus episode was pretty much an insightful inquiries because it was our bonus episode for the month. But I do right. I have reached out to a past guest today. Oh. Um, and we'll see if that past guest will come back. Um, yeah, so. d- yeah. Don't put pressure on them. Not putting pressure, and and not saying who it is right now until right. we're done with this recording, and then I'll let you know. Uh, right, right. Who it is. But also, what I wanted to get to was, um, if you like what you hear, you are welcome to share it with your family, friends, colleagues, people on the street. Whatever. We've never really asked for that before because it made me uncomfortable. But now I realize I need to get over my stuff. Get over myself. (laughs) And just try to. I mean, we need we need more unbiased news coverage and something that simplifies it and doesn't like over lawyer speak it. Right. Lawyer speak. That is not a proper term, but it is. That's what I call it with me. Lawyer speak at the New York Times. Like in and I, I mentioned a lot of media organizations and sometimes in a negative sense, like the New York Times. But I'm going to tell you, they do very quality uh, reporting and research. They do. But it is... They actually bet. Over, yes. They're not just going to take anybody um, as a source, usually. Yeah. Um, but 
they do over-explain, and it's not simplified. And so I hope we can provide that for people. Yeah, a little compact episode. Yeah. Quick, whatever's going on in the week. And we also have a newsletter that comes out every single Monday. Um, Carbon will post a link to sign up for that on yes. our Instagram which I will get to that in the end. Do you have something else you want to say before we no, wrap you've, this up? No, you've actually wrapped it up really nicely. Okay. All right. Well, we want to thank you all so much for listening to our podcast. We hope that you found it both informative and engaging. And if you have any feedback or suggestions for future episodes, please let us know. We are We are always open to feedback and suggestions because we know we don't know everything. And it helps when we all pull our resources together. So Yep. If you would like in-depth coverage of these stories and more, follow us on Instagram at Oakland Analytics. Tiana, thank you so much. And until next week, stay safe out there.